Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. everybody. This week, I wanted to chat a little bit about a different witness to the events leading up to the American Revolution, Phyllis Wheatley, an African slave who would write her way to freedom in a time in history when being a woman of color was doubly degrading and frustrating. As a woman, Wheatley was considered to have no voice. And as an African, Phyllis, and those who looked like her, was considered a subspecies of human that could be trafficked as property. But Despite all the odds, Wheatley became the first black woman to publish a book in the United States. Phyllis's life is a mix of a little bit of luck and utter tragedy, and though she's fallen out of favor in some circles, the publication of her poems in the 1770s helped foster the movement for African-American literature and would be the ticket to her emancipation. So, who is Phyllis, and why do we know so little about her? Well, grab your cup of coffee and let's find out. Born in 1753, not much is known about Phyllis before her capture and sale on the coasts of West Africa in 1761, not even the name given to her at birth. Landing in the port of Boston on July 11th, notice of her ship's arrival was placed in the Boston Evening Post and the Boston Gazette and Country Journal. Appearing on July 13, 1761 in the Gazette, the announcement for Wheatley's ship's landing stated, quote, "'Just imported from Africa,' a number of prime slaves from the Windward Coast, and to be sold on board Captain Gwyn, lying at New Boston. End quote. Reading of the ship's arrival, wealthy tailor and merchant John Wheatley made plans to travel to the newest slave ship in harbor, the Phyllis, to purchase a house servant for his wife Susanna. Reviewing the inventory on board at the wharf on Beach Street, John stumbled upon a small child, without her front teeth and scarcely dressed, the perfect gift for his wife. Phyllis was purchased for a smaller sum than the others. She was a child, after all, and a female at that. She would never grow to be a big, strong man able to work the tobacco fields. There was also a fear of disease killing her before she could be sold. Wheatley is described as being slender and frail and was without much clothing to protect her from the elements. Of the 96 Africans kidnapped from Senegal for the Middle Passage, only 75 lived long enough to see the shores of Boston. With a high mortality rate, the owner of the vessel wanted to ensure he was able to secure every last penny. The term Middle Passage comes from the fact that the route from Africa to the Americas was considered the second, or middle, leg of the slave trade triangle. I mentioned the triangle in the episode on John Punch, but as a refresher, ships from Europe, loaded with cargo such as weapons and rum, would sail to the coast of Africa and would trade these goods for Africans. They would then take the Middle Passage to America, where the slaves would be sold in exchange for goods produced in America, such as tobacco and sugar. That cargo would then make the final journey back to Europe, but back to Phyllis. Susanna Wheatley named the child Phyllis, and, as was custom for slaves, her surname would be Wheatley, just like her owner. Purchased to serve as a nursemaid for Susanna as she aged, Phyllis would spend a majority of her youth in the middle of a tumultuous and violent Boston potentially bearing witness to the Stamp Act protests and Boston Massacre, 
two events occurring just outside her door. Another jarring experience for the young girl, being transported from a country where those who looked like her were the majority, to a land filled with white bodies and those who resembled her treated as property. In an uncharacteristic move, Phyllis was actually taught to read and write, being tutored by Susanna and John's daughter Mary. Knowing no English upon her arrival at the age of seven or eight in 1761, she was a quick study, mastering the language by 1765 and studying the Greek and Latin classics by the age of 12. Education was extremely rare for women in colonial America, let alone a slave woman. It remains unknown as to why Mary decided to take on the young girl's education as her charge. However, Phyllis's abilities were easily recognizable and, from all the available sources I could find, widely supported by her owners. Phyllis wrote her first poem at the age of 14, titled To the University of Cambridge in New England. In it, she pleads with Harvard students to take their studies seriously and to avoid the sin of temptation while increasing their education. A devout Christian, the poem also draws heavily on religious overtones, reminding the students the most important knowledge they can have is that Jesus died to redeem all sinners. Wheatley's first published poem was in 1767 in the Newport Mercury newspaper when she was just 13 years old. The poem, On Messrs. Hussey and Coffin, was published on December 21st and was inspired by a story Phyllis heard regarding two sailors who were almost lost at sea. However, the poem that seemed to set her apart and garner the support for publication from her owners was the Whitefield Elegy, published in 1771. George Whitefield was a popular preacher that Phyllis might have met during her tenure in Boston. Susanna Wheatley seemed committed to getting Phyllis's poems recognition, attempting to secure support for publication in Boston. Unfortunately, many in the Massachusetts colony refused to trust Phyllis's work was authentic, believing slaves would be unable to produce art, literature, or poetry. Not finding success in Boston, Susanna Wheatley set about having Phyllis's work published in London. Susanna was able to secure a publisher, Archibald Bell, and set about arranging meetings for Phyllis, who was making the journey to London with Susanna's son, Nathaniel. While in London, Phyllis met with Benjamin Franklin, Lord Mayor of London, and had a scheduled appearance before King George III. However, she had to miss it due to tending to her sick mistress. While unable to meet while she was in London, Selina Hastings, the Countess of Huntington, was a supporter and financial backer of Phyllis's, helping secure the London publisher and committing her own money to funding the book's printing. However, the idea that a slave woman could be the writer of poetry was just too unfathomable for many to believe, and prior to its publication, Phyllis faced an oral examination in Boston in 1772. The all-white, all-male panel totaled 18 and included such prominent individuals such as Thomas Hutchinson, the governor of Massachusetts, Andrew Oliver, lieutenant governor, John Hancock, and members of the clergy. The issue at play was the concept that Africans, as a race, were an inferior group and were a completely different species. This, of course, was used as the reason for why Africans were allowed to be enslaved. In attempting to make a scientific argument about their differences, Immanuel Kant wrote, quote, The Negroes of Africa have by nature no feeling that rises above the trifling, end quote. Going further, Kant wrote, Among the hundreds of thousands of blacks who are transported elsewhere from the countries, although many of them have been set free, still not a single one was ever found who presented anything great in art or science or any other praiseworthy quality, even though among the whites, some continually rise aloft from the lowest. 
So fundamental is the difference between these two races of man, and it appears to be as great in regard to mental capacities as in color. And so, for Wheatley, this oral board represented undermining the argument of subordination by demonstrating that Africans could, in fact, produce something of worth, that they, too, could produce art, thereby directly contradicting one of the main arguments for enslavement. Wheatley was successful in defending her work and was able to secure a written verification of authenticity by the panel. Included in the first page of her book, the examiners wrote, quote, We, whose names are underwritten, do assure the world that the poems specified in the following page were, as we verily believe, written by Phyllis, a young Negro girl who was but a few years since brought an uncultivated barbarian from Africa and has ever since been, and now is, under the disadvantage of serving as a slave in a family in this town. She has been examined by some of the best judges and is thought qualified to write them. End quote. Oh, good. I'm glad a group of 18 men all thought that they were good enough to judge a woman's poetry ability. Jeez. This written confirmation of authenticity would become standard practice throughout the abolitionist era. Having affirmed her abilities, the letter was included in five advertisements for her book in London. Her compilation of poems would be published in 1773. Titled Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, the book contained 39 entries and is the first work of poetry to ever be published by an African-American woman. Shortly after the release of her book, Phyllis was manumitted. Now that she was free, she could earn money from her writings. However, with the death of her former owners, Wheatley found publishing a second book much harder than the first. Wheatley would publish a series of advertisements asking for individuals to sign up for her next release dropping details such as the book's dedication to Benjamin Franklin. However, as revolution broke out in 1774, Phyllis was unable to get the necessary co-signers to fund publication. In 1775, at the height of her popularity, Wheatley wrote a letter to General George Washington and enclosed a poem in his honor titled, To His Excellency, George Washington. She received a response in 1776 with an invitation to his headquarters in Cambridge for a private reading. Hey, girl, hey! Her poem in Washington's honor was published by Thomas Paine that same year. In 1779, Phyllis married John Peters, a free black man who was a small grocer and part-time lawyer. She would have three children. However, all of them would pass away in infancy. Peters left Phyllis shortly after the birth of their third child and would be jailed for failure to pay his debts. Unable to find financial security through her writing, Wheatley took on work as a maid in a boarding house. She would die on December 5th, 1784, at the age of 31. So why is it that Phyllis isn't as revered as some of her contemporaries? After all, she broke down barriers and is considered the mother of African-American literature. Why isn't she celebrated as much as Jackie Robinson? Well, it all comes down to a poem Wheatley wrote about her life as a slave titled On Being Brought from Africa to America. That poem says... "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, "'taught my benighted soul to understand "'that there's a God, that there's a Savior too. "'Once I redemption neither sought nor knew, "'some view our sable race with scornful eye, "'their color is a diabolical dye. "'Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, "'may be refined and join the angelic train.'" In what Henry Louis Gates Jr. calls the most reviled poem in African-American literature, Wheatley's critics point to her ambivalence in support of slavery in her writings as a reason to be less than celebratory of her record. 
While she was praised by her contemporaries for demonstrating the abilities of black Americans, citing her work as proof of equality of blacks and therefore another reason to abolish slavery, Wheatley's reputation would come under fire as early as 1887, when black nationalist Edward Wilmos Blyden wrote a piece highly critical of Wheatley and her abilities. Since then, Wheatley has faced charges of not being black enough and of imitating her white masters, thereby diminishing the black experience in her publications. However, Wheatley had taken issue with slavery in the poem to the right and honorable William Earl of Dartmouth. In a fairly blunt approach for the time, Wheatley expresses a love of freedom and attributes this love to her own story of being snatched from Africa. And let's not forget, this is a woman, a black woman, in colonial America who published poems. Her whole existence is an act of revolution and rebellion. So how could Wheatley write a poem about one of the most vile periods of history with such a romantic lens? It could be that Wheatley's experience as a slave was less horrific than the millions of others. She wasn't put to work in a field, and there is evidence to suggest she was raised more as a member of the Wheatley family than as a slave. Whatever criticism scholars have regarding Wheatley's choice and material, one thing is true. Wheatley helped catapult African-American literature into the American lexicon, and played a part in undercutting the racist opinions that black men and women were too inferior to produce great works of art and were a subclass of human. Being only the second woman to ever publish in America, and the first black woman, Wheatley deserves more than the mere footnote in our history. Her poetry helped create a call to action for fellow black men and women to produce art, thereby demonstrating their equality and pushing for the abolition of their enslavement. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Thank you.